Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. The Iran nuclear deal. North Korean detainees and Russian oligarchs. This administration continues to disrupt the global order and will share conversations on books relevant to these times. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are in the middle of our membership drive. For those of you who don't know, we have a site on patreon.com where you can become a patron of Pantsuit Politics. There are several levels of support from $5 a month up to $100 a month where you can help us create a sustainable support for the show that allows us to spend more time researching and allows us to pay support staff like our producer Dylan. Hi Dylan. And our production assistant Elise. These are all hugely helpful to not only the show, but just to us as human beings out here trying to produce good content that makes the world a better place. And we really, really appreciate your support. We're really excited about this membership drive. We are working on swag to send to every new member and every current member who upgrades their monthly support level. We can't wait to share those. We'll be sharing those very soon. And so if you are interested in helping continue the mission of Pantsuit Politics through monthly financial support, please go to patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for all of the feedback on our dairy farming episode. I've gotten so many wonderful and very long, thoughtful messages. I think that this episode really struck a chord with people, especially about what we consume and how we consume it. So many people Really appreciated how Carolyn in our conversation talked about there not being any monsters or villains in this conversation. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. difficult. It's really hard to line up your monthly budget with your priorities, to develop innovation in different fields without disrupting the kinds of farms and stores and uh, retail outlets that we care about. I think Jane summed it up really well by saying, here's my consumer philosophy. Everything I consume is an investment in the world I want to live in. I want my investments to be local and impactful. I vote with my dollars. My purchases need to align with my values. That's a conversation that Sarah and I are going to continue on future podcasts because it's really important. But I want to say thank you again to everyone for really thinking through not just how you buy your milk, but whether you read newspapers and how you shop in the world generally. Yeah, I think what's so 
important that many of our listeners pointed out is that it's it's easy to do it once. It's hard to do it over right. and over and over again because we make so many decisions every day, every month, every year, um, purchasing decisions, budgeting decisions, eating decisions. Um, we had a podcast on The Nuanced Life about decision fatigue with Ann Bogle. This is something I struggle with. And so much of that is tied up in just our sort of psychological limits as human beings. And I think Carolyn just did such a good job of – no, sort of offering grace because she understands why that's hard and and sort of in our capitalist environment, not just as individuals, but as businesses, all these decisions we're making. And it's impossible to think through every possible scenario of how they could play out. And so we're all just doing the best we can. And, you know, part of doing the best you can is when you see something that you don't like, yet you work to change it um, as best you can. And so I think that that, that conversation is going to leave all of us thinking through um, some changes we could make both as individuals and on the community level. I think one of the first things that comes to mind for me is supporting local business. We don't have enough where I am. Truly, mm. I would love to make some different consumption choices. I would have to drive like an hour sometimes to do that because my choices here are big box primarily. Mm -hmm. And so how can we encourage entrepreneurship in our communities and then show up for people, like you said, not just once, but again and again and again to say, we we want you in our community. Even if you're not my favorite restaurant, I'm going to keep coming back because I want you here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there was lots in the news this week, lots of globally impactful news. We're going to start with the president's decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal, which to me is almost impossible to separate from the ongoing conversation about North Korea. I don't understand how we sit down with a country and make promises while simultaneously breaking promises with another country. Yeah, this is something that I've been talking about in our Patreon Nightly Nuance segment and thinking about in connection with creating the primer on Iran, especially because we're talking about the same thing. It's mm, not just it's doing, literally. It's exactly literally. the same thing that we're talking <laughs> about. And it sounds like what the president wants when he talks about renegotiating the Iranian nuclear agreement is for Iran to completely abandon its weapons capabilities, its foreign policy in the world. Mm -hmm. And look, I think Iran does some terrible things. As does North Korea. As does North Korea. Also, they are sovereign nations. Why would they just say, oh, cool, whatever mm -hmm. you want, United States. I'm just not sure what he thinks our leverage is to make that happen, especially when you consider, and this is true about North Korea in a very different way, but Iran, through its entire existence, has been fighting for true independence. And the Iranian people throughout the entire existence of the country have been, you, I mean, you want to talk about really ripped off? That's the Iranian people. Whether they have had hardline religious extremists governing them or more secular governments, someone has been taking from the Iranian people taking their oil, taking their money, blowing the money on extravagance, repressing their freedoms. I mean, this is a country that has been through it. That is not to excuse what the leadership has done and what the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps does in the world, which is awful, unequivocally awful. But it's like not as simple as, well, they're evil and, so, and we're big, bad United States, and so they're going to do exactly what we want or no deal. I mean, what do you get mm -hmm. from that? What's so frustrating to me in both scenarios is that he seems to want everyone to come to the table as he requires them to be sort of morally, ethically. You have to come to the table as a pure, repentant actor, as opposed to negotiating with people where they are, because that's how you always negotiate. You negotiate with who shows up, not try to force them into being who you want them to be before they ever come to the table. I don't understand this strategy at all. That's not how the world works. That's not how people work. You good negotiators understand and let people be where they are and who they are, and they deal with that accordingly. I think that I have real concerns because of just the deliberate unwillingness to see North Korea 
as they are. What North Korea wants is to be on a stage with the United States to validate their very oppressive regime. And now, look, I am not supportive of the ongoing approach, which, which which was to freeze them out. I think it was the best of bad options, but it wasn't getting us anywhere. And I'm glad we're getting somewhere. I don't want to – I want to be clear about that. If, Do, if Donald Trump was an accelerant, wonderful. We needed this process accelerated. But the just willful ignorance to how this could play out to his advantage – when that's exactly what you're so supposed to be thinking about with a negotiation. I was listening to a North Korean correspondent from PBS on NPR talking about how the release of these detainees, which is wonderful. How wonderful that these three Americans are back where they belong. I'm so happy about that. Thank you to the Trump administration. Yes. Great thank work. You. I'm so glad Good these job. people are home. I'm glad they're home. But now the North Koreans are coming to the table from a position of power saying, look, we gave you what we want, what you wanted. We gave your three Americans back. But they're known to do that. They're known to use to grab people, detain them as pawns. OK. And now they're in this position of power there. It, there just seems to be no willingness to see, to think a few steps ahead. How does this play out to their advantage to instead of just shaming them and saying uh, you're terrible, you're weak, you're just responding to our strength. Like I, it just seems so short sighted and such a simplistic view of a very complex negotiation process. The other thing that I think ramps up the difficulty in the North Korean negotiations is that we are alienating partners in the world with respect to the JCPOA. Mm. Part of what made the JCPOA possible is that President Obama got the Europeans to issue extreme sanctions on Iran, got Russia and China to come to the table the, the world came together to say to Iran, we have to do something about this. How are we to bring the world together again around mm -hmm. North Korea in a way that creates maximum leverage in those discussions when we aren't honoring our commitment under the JCPOA? If I was a European leader right now, I would be at the end of my rope between the Paris Climate Accord and this, you know, I don't want to be a laughingstock in the world. I don't want people to not trust the United States and the word of their leaders. I don't want that. That is not just against my personal values and the values of our country, but on the most pragmatic level, I think it's bad for us. I think it's bad for our economy. I think it's bad in the negotiation process. I think it excludes us from decisions that we need to be a part of. I just, it is so, again, short-sighted that my frustration level grows, even as there are positive developments. I don't want to miss that. Those are positive developments. But, you know, short-term positive gain, no matter how great, has to be looked at with a more long-term strategic plan. And I just don't think there is one. I'm frustrated with our fellow Americans about the attitude that we have about the climate change accord and the Iranian nuclear agreement and North Korea, because I think this posture of thinking of ourselves as victims is trickling down into our state governments, into mm. our local governments. I see in our local races language, you would think that government officials are coming into our homes and taking everything that we have, which, by the way, happens in some of the countries we're talking about here. We are not getting ripped off as Americans. There are things mm -hmm. in our government that don't work well. There are things that happen in our economy, just like we were discussing with the milk situation, that we can do better on. But we have the ability to do better. Mm -hmm. No one is taking that away from us systematically. So when we talk about these agreements as though America is losing out, that is that's so unthinkable, I think, to re the rest of the world. Sarah and I were talking before we started recording about how Iran is about the size of Alaska, but has as many people as California, Texas, and Florida put together. And every time I do one of these primers and kind of go into my geography nerd mode, I am stunned when I think about how the sheer volume of space we have in the United States. As Americans, mm -hmm. we just have so much space to move around in the world. And then when you look at America and the world's resources, we have so much land, we have so much money, we have so much power, and good. I don't feel apologetic about any of those things. 
But I do feel apologetic when as a country we're saying we didn't get everything, so we're walking away. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I was so frustrated to see in my local paper an editorial that showed, I think it was the UK, the European Union, and another country basically standing next to Iran and being like, oh, yeah, everything looks great while taking like stacks of money off this big pile of money sitting behind Iran. I was like, what a tacky, awful, skeptical view of a very complex international situation. I was so disappointed that editorial cartoon was even created, much less ran in my local newspaper. I'm trying to remember that what people live through influences our views of history Mm -hmm. significantly. And so what Donald Trump has lived through significantly influences views. I'm sure that I would feel quite differently than I do today if I had been the age I am now during the Iran hostage crisis, right? I don't, I didn't live through the moments of 52 Americans being held in an embassy and treated horribly for over a year. That has to get in your DNA and change how you feel about another country. And it becomes harder to distinguish that country and its leadership from its people when you Mm -hmm. live through something like that. So I'm trying to have that space for lots of different worldviews. But when you look at what's going on in the Middle East, and maybe this is a transition to Israel becoming much more aggressive in Syria, I just feel like we're not learning the lessons of history. We just mm-hmm. refuse to learn the lessons of history. Instead, we're we're creating conditions reminiscent of the world wars. Yes, that's what's so concerning to me. And I feel like with North Korea, with Iran, with the ever-increasing information coming about Russia's relationships, I'm going to go ahead and say financial relationships with the Trump administration and Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, I just see these world actors exerting their influence in increasingly brazen ways. Um, And it's concerning. It's hard not to see all this as as if you take a, you know, a bigger picture view and not be concerned. Well, Syria is, has been talked about as an opportunity for a proxy conflict for many Mm -hmm. years now. And Syria has been kind of a canvas for forms of all kinds of aggression. You have the Assad regime oppressing the people there and the civil war for control of the Syrian government. And then you have ISIS activity in Syria and training of terrorist organizations. You have this area of land on the border between Syria and Israel that has been contested for a long time. And this week, it's disputed who fired first, but we know that there is um, a lot of military activity happening in that area. And then there's Russia's involvement, and there's the United States' involvement. And Iran has sent military troops into Syria, which is why uh, the Quds Force, why Israel says that it's necessary for it to engage militarily because Iran is such a threat to Israel. And and look, it is, right? It mm-hmm. is. Iran is a threat to Israel. There is no question about it. Again, it's hard to know what the strategy is from the United States when we've left the JCPOA. This seems to me to be a time when more than ever, you need the mm-hmm. P5 on the same page. Yep. And I'm just going to dive even a little bit deeper into this Michael Cohen stuff, because to me, they're all interrelated. I think the either opportunity that Israel and Saudi Arabia see is not different than the opportunity Russia sees. I think they see a vacuum. I think they see a sort of no leadership, a lot of chaos, and they're taking their moment. They're taking their moment to insert their influence and to influence world relationships and world events to their interest. You know, when I look at the financial documents 
or well, I guess I'm not looking at the financial documents because they're not, they're not exactly released. But the the confirmed existence of these these payments by these companies funneled through Michael Cohen. When I see the intense relationship between Saudi Arabia and Jared Kushner, also within the administration, when I just see all the ways that there is a lot of money and a lot of influence and a lot of very dramatic disaligning from our European allies, I just feel like there's a pattern here and it's a concerning one. I don't even know where to start with the Michael Cohen story. Mm. It's such a bad time for lawyers in the news cycle. Mm. It's so strange to me. When I read the Robert Mueller indictment against Alex Vanderswan, I was shocked to see Skadden Arps mentioned because mm. it's just this great law firm, right? This great international law firm. And now Squire Patent Box is just popping up in these Michael Cohen stories. And not just as a firm that represented a client doing something, but as like engaging Michael Cohen to shove business their way. It's so crazy to me, having spent my career working in a law firm and working with people from other firms that that are popping up in this investigation, it's there are some really good people doing really good work out there. I can't imagine what it feels like to them to be mentioned in these stories. And I'm sure that's true for AT&T employees and pharmaceutical employees whose companies were giving money to the, the Michael Cohen entity that did what? It's hard to tell what, what he did, right? I read someone comparing it to giving Lucy money for advice in the Peanuts cartoons. Like, Michael Cohen isn't qualified to do a whole lot of things. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty clear that this is just influence and access and the opposite of what Trump campaigned on, for sure. And where did all the money go? Because dude is, like, leveraging his personal apartment to pay his legal bills. So he's not sitting on piles of cash. Where did all all this money go? Somebody please tell me. Because I'm confused. I look at all this. I texted Beth when the documents first sort of were revealed. And I said, I'm not saying the end is close, but I think these documents are the beginning of it. I think that and have always thought that this was never about policy or influence with for the Trump administration. It was always and forever about money. Um, I think as we learn more and more going back, you know, pre-financial crisis, pre-recession, when he was the king of debt and Americans stopped lending money to him, he started getting money from Russia. This is things that his own family members have said. And, you know, this this these, this flow of huge amounts of cash through shell companies with direct ties to Donald Trump. I don't know how you look at it any other way as money laundering and corruption on a massive scale, I'm sorry. I'm trying to be careful in my language, and I'm trying to reserve judgment, and I will patiently await Robert Mueller's investigation. But, you know, I, I don't know how you look at all this and see anything but corruption. Timing is a very important element now because what is Robert Mueller to do with the midterm elections approaching? There's been some reporting on how, according to Department of Justice policy, he needs to either get this stuff out in the public eye and get his indictments done, like pretty much now, or he needs to wait until after the midterm elections, because otherwise it will be seen. And I think this is critically important, and I and I trust Robert Mueller to understand this, especially after everything we've lived through in the past couple of years. If he does much in the late summer or early fall, it will be seen as trying yeah. to rig the system against the president. And But you know what? I'm so – I feel like so much of the mistakes that happened in the 2016 election from James Comey releasing what he did to President Obama being, in my opinion, intimidated and bullied and threatened by Mitch McConnell. We were all responding to this well, we have to make we have to be so concerned about the 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 barking and harping from people who will say it's rigged and Donald Trump and all his you know base who will say it's rigged, it's rigged and rigged. And we were so scared of all that. And you know what? I don't care anymore. Fine. Say it's rigged. If the timing doesn't work for you, that's your problem, not mine. Like we need to do the right thing and not worry about how one side or the other will see it. And it's not 
that doesn't that's not usually my position. I usually try to think very carefully about how and I think it's important to think emotionally how the other side will be affected. I think that's an important thing to think about. I, honestly, I do. But at this point, I just feel like mistakes were made because we were overly concerned about the other side crowing about situations being rigged. And that's how we ended up here. Well, and listen, there's an X factor here, too, right? Because Michael Avenatti does not have that obligation. Mm-mm. And, and he, he didn't is, care. And he came to play. And the yeah, existence did. of private lawsuits, not just government lawsuits, there's going to be a cloud around this next election one way or another. Yeah. And Michael Avenatti, more than anybody that I've seen in a long time, understands exactly how to work the media. Mm-hmm. understands exactly how to pull information out at times when it will be uh, received most enthusiastically. And so whatever the Mueller team does, there are going to be people who think that the fix is in because of what's happening um, in press reporting from the Stormy Daniels suit. And I say that with no derision for Avenatti. He he's a client and he's serving his client. I think he's a pretty good lawyer from what I've seen so far. Yeah. I mean, he he baited the president into a defamation lawsuit. Yeah, I'm here for him. I'm just going to be honest. The more he does, the more I like him. Well, we have handled as best we can some pretty crazy news happening across the world and within our own country. Next up, we are sharing best conversation with listener Jennifer about James Comey's new book and my conversation with our Pantsuit Politics book club founder, Megan, about the book club choices for the first quarter, which were Between the World and Me by ta Coates, Personal History by Catherine Graham, and Decision Points by George W. Bush. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. So I finished yesterday. Okay. I'm dying to know what you think. As I was reading this, I was like, huh, I have so many thoughts and feelings and they were very all over the place, but I think I've settled on my kind of overall take on this book. Well, tell me your overall take on the book. My overall take on the book is that he's freaking Forrest Gump. Anytime (laughs) there was anything that was going on, Jim Comey was there. Do you know what I mean? Like it's to, like I said almost those words. I didn't think of Forrest Gump. That's so great. But I said that's what husband, he is. He has been involved in every Amazing. major event of our lifetime. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And I think we have analyzed him in a vacuum mm-hmm. related to this election and forgotten what influenced him leading up to it. Absolutely. And what influenced him was um, torture which was that, that whole part. So up until that point, I was like, oh my goodness. I thought this is just narcissism in a different form to some degree. It got to be very I, 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 I. Mm-hmm. Then he got the role of, what is it, the dag? And in, in that role, watching him have to just make those tough decisions and, and hearing about rushing to Ashcroft's bedside. And that's when I was like, do you know what? He really is a rule of law guy. And that is his, and my respect sort of came, it just came back. It just, you know, I guess I was, I I guess I was getting to like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm tired of like, and then I did this so wonderfully, and then I did this so wonderfully, and then I was present for here. And then we got to that part, and I was like, that's why he was in that position at that moment, was to, because he made it sound as though Bush was not well-informed about at all. Because as soon as Bush heard what was going on, he was fine with it. This sounded very much driven by Cheney. and I liked, once we got into this section, I liked how he pulled no punches, you know, not in a, not in a um, mean-spirited or derogatory way, but he did pull no punches. Like, this was their objective. This was my objective because I work for the rule of law. That's my primary goal is truth and rule of law. And I liked how he pulled no punches. I liked how, I couldn't believe he was involved with freaking Vince Foster I was like, blew my mind. Every, I mean, he is Forrest Gump. It's a, that's such a great analogy. So for, for you, our listeners who haven't read the book, yes, two-thirds of this book is not about Donald Trump. No. The vast no. majority of this book is telling you who James Comey is uh-huh. in his career. And, and that uh-huh. career is um, – Primarily as a U.S. attorney who prosecuted mafia types. Yes. Who prosecuted. That was so illustrative. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, and his parallel there. Parallel yes. is right on. That is to a, Donald Trump, absolutely. 100%. And now I understand why he was fired. He was fired because there was nothing Trump could hold over Comey. He could absolutely hold it over his deputy. And so he had to get Comey out of the way. He had to have somebody he felt like he could play. It, it makes it com- makes complete sense now. Complete Absolutely. Sense. As a U.S. attorney, he also prosecuted some kind of just average people for obstruction of justice, which becomes right. later. Yep. Um, then he moves on, becomes the um, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York right after 9-11. Right. 
He is involved as the Deputy Attorney General, as Jennifer mentioned, when during the Clinton years. So he goes through the entire saga with Vince Foster, with Whitewater. He has a role in investigating Whitewater. Um, he, I mean, he has really, like, if, if you can name something that has involved the FBI or the Department of Justice in our lifetimes. He's been there. He had a front row seat for it. And then most formative was when he was in the Attorney General's office in the Bush years. I think this was most formative. I would agree with that. All of this criticism about how he handled the situation in the 2016 election, I think directly ties to this period. So as Jennifer was mentioning, he was at, at odds with Dick Cheney and Dick Cheney's people over Gonzalez, torture. Right. And, and I think that period, rightly or wrongly, taught him that there are, there are kind of two tracks for the rule of law. There is what is the right outcome that we uh-huh. should get to to protect and preserve the rule of law. Uh-huh. And then there is like what's sort of the normative process to get there. Uh-huh. And I think the Bush years taught him that that you often have to ditch the normative process to get there in order to get to the right substantive outcome. And he is a process guy. And so that's part of his struggle with this outcome is that he's like, Trump is disrupting every norm we've got. And that is so frustrating to him, I think, because he had to disrupt that norm. Mm-hmm. And Ashcroft from his sickbed, standing right up to all those men saying, no, I'm sorry, the, the attorney general is him, is Comey now. So he had to disrupt so many norms, and he, he recognized that that is not a sustainable model. And then to have norm after norm after norm after norm disrupted, it's really, it's, it's frightening him, I think. I think he wrote this book for a couple of reasons. I think he wanted to explain himself I, I do. I think he wanted to explain himself. I think he wanted to have his own words on the record. He is so careful in this book. He is so careful in every interview. He, t- I mean, and so consistent, unbelievably so. You can tell he's a prosecutor. Yes. Like he does not bring this up from the book to you to anything I read with him. He is almost consistent to the point of boring. If you're trying to trace what Comey's doing. Because he's so consistent, which makes him such a good prosecutor. He's a good lawyer, really smart guy. Um, But I think he wanted to explain himself. I think he wanted that on the record for posterity. I think he does. I think he does feel horrible about how Mm -hmm. this ended for his country. I think that part of what he did with leaking the memo, again, disrupting a norm, that he, I mean... He, he could have leaked so many things. I mean, he was forced Gump. He could have leaked anything at any time to anybody starting in the mid-80s. He prosecuted John Gotti for crying out loud. Like, he could have done anything, and he never has. And so that, again, was another disruptive norm in order to try to, I think, I don't want to say right the wrong because I don't think Comey thinks it was wrong. I think Comey stands by his decision. But I think he wants to try to take our country and veer it back toward the rule of law, back toward our normative behavior. And, and this is his way of trying to contribute to that with an eye toward the fact that I'm a witness potentially for Robert Mueller, my guy that I almost resigned with over torture. It's just, it's unbelievably mind boggling. Hello, everyone. We are here today with the fabulous Megan Hart, the founder of Pantsuit Politics Book Club. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much. I love a good book club, and I really love a Pantsuit Politics Book Club. You've really changed the format this year, though. Tell us how this year of the Pantsuit Politics Book Club is organized. Yeah, so instead of doing one kind of randomly chosen book a month, I thought it might be fun to do themes because we always have such great conversations with uh, the readers on Facebook, on Goodreads, on Twitter. Uh, so I thought it would be fun to do like some prolonged discussions each quarter. So every quarter is broken out into a theme for that quarter. And then there's three books. So still a book a month, but the three books for uh, that theme. So we started with 
uh, autobiographies and memoirs. I just thought that would be a good baseline to start the year. Let's just kind of ground ourselves with the words of others. And then it moves into fiction, which uh, is going to be a big jump. I haven't, I haven't made the jump myself yet, but should be a little bit of a stretch. And then uh, we'll do some election themed booked, and then we're going to end the year with some self-reflection. So I'm excited. I think it's, I think it's going well so far. Well, before we talk about the books for the first quarter, go ahead and give them the teaser for next quarter for the fiction books. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So uh, Gentleman Moscow, Alias Grace, and All the Light We Cannot See. There we go. Yes. So Alias Grace I have read, um, and then the other two are on on my next one as soon as I finish Personal History by Catherine Gray. All right. So let's dive into this quarter. First up, we're going to talk about Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, one of the most powerful books I've read in the last couple of years. It is formulated as a letter to his son, although he's pretty open about the fact that that was just like an organization technique. It's not necessarily to be read as a literal letter to his son. Right. But he talks a lot about his own life and, and sort of teaching about race through the, through the lens of teaching his son about race in America. So what did you think? I know you said it was powerful. I thought it was incredibly powerful. So I love this book. Ta-Nehisi Coates is someone who I think has sort of made his career on in his the way his writing style is like he really faces things very directly mm-hmm. like this is not a hope and change book this book is very um it can be brutal in parts I think it's it's difficult to read in sections like it's very let me lay this bear before you let me lay bare the struggles of race in America. You know, he, the first time I heard about him is he writes for the Atlantic and he wrote this amazing piece about reparations and reparations was like just sort of a joke. I felt like before he tackled it. And by the end, you're like, oh, yeah, reparate. Let's where do I sign the check? Like, it's just he's very the way he lays things out is just because he does not. Like, I don't want to say like he's not a he is emotional in a way. He's not it's not purely logic. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to describe his particular style, but it is it is very um, striking. And this book is very striking. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. It uh, it's it moves you to want to do more. But think, something I think is interesting about this book is it moves you without telling you exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the books that are right now are saying, here are the problems. Here's how we think you should tackle them. And he just lays bare his soul of here are the things that uh, – that black people face, I'm not going to tell you how to fix them. You should do your own soul searching and figure out how you want to fix it within yourself first. And I thought that was incredibly powerful. Yeah, because, you know, I think his his framing is so good because there's something about the way in which he lays it bare without recommendations, without allowing you to sort of move on to how to fix it. You know, that it, right. that we don't like to do in this country, but that is so necessary. It reminds me of a story I've heard often about Louisville's mayor, that when someone tells him something like he doesn't get defensive, he doesn't make excuses. He just says, I'm so sorry that happened. Like he just is very it, to just witness the the intensity of the problem instead of immediately trying to fix it. Absolutely. There's no resolution. There's no uh, pretty bow on the end of this. It, it really makes you. I think it makes you reflect because you can tell that he is reflecting and he is being so vulnerable with you that for at least for me, it made me really think about what my approach is and what my view is because of his vulnerability. So my favorite part of this book, the part that I like always leave, I think about it all the time still, even though I read this book several years ago, he's talking to his son. He says, I have raised you to respect every human being as singular, and you must extend the same respect into the past. Slavery is not an indefinable mass of flesh. It is a particular, specific enslaved woman whose mind is as active as your own, whose range of feelings as vast as your own, who prefers the way the light falls in one particular spot in the woods, who enjoys fishing where the water eddies in the nearby stream, who loves her mother in her own complicated way, thinks her sister talks too loud, has a favorite cousin, a favorite season, who excels at dressmaking and knows inside herself that she is as intelligent and capable as anyone. Slavery is the same woman born in a world that loudly proclaims its love of freedom and describes this world in essential text. 
a world in which these same professors hold this woman a slave, hold her mother a slave, her father a slave, her daughter a slave. And when this woman peers back into the generations, all she sees is the enslaved. She can hope for more. She can imagine some future for her grandchildren. But when she dies, the world, which is really the only world she can really know, ends. For this woman, enslavement is not a parable. It is damnation. It is the never-ending night, and the length of that night is most of our history. Never forget that we were enslaved in this country longer than we have been free. Never forget that for 250 years, black people were born into chains, whole generations followed by more generations who knew nothing but chains. And he says this to his son is like, this is not... This is not just a myth for you. Like, don't make this a part of your story just so you can be the hopeful end. Like, this is the reality of what happened. And I think about that part all the time. I actually have a saved quote that kind of goes off well of that. Um, Mine is, mistakes were made, bodies were broken, people were enslaved. We meant well. We tried our best. Good intention is a hall pass through history, a Mm. sleeping pill that ensures the dream. And I continue to think about that. Yep. And it's so true because on the same token, like we always say all the time on the podcast, like don't immediately doubt people's motives. And you right. don't want to do that with the with history either. But when you are talking about actual crimes committed, motive is only a part of the equation, you know, and so it cannot be the entirety of the excuse. Um, when you're looking at whether to send someone to jail, yeah, you look at intent, but that's not the only thing you look at. You also look at if there were dead people in the streets, if there were, you know, if there were slaves, there were slaves. It doesn't matter what was going through your head. I mean, it does, and it's relevant. We can talk about it, but it cannot encompass the entirety of the conclusion we we make about that historical time period. And, you know, I think that that is such a, he's so, you know, unflinching in his ability to say that and look at it and face it down. And I think that's always the power of his writing. Right. And I, I really agree with you when he's talking to his son where he's saying, don't let it be part of your past. It's part of your, your present. I just read a New York times piece regarding a new, uh, museum in the South. I think there's an outdoor portion and an indoor portion, but it has, um, jars of the, uh, soil that was there at lynching sites. Oh yeah. I've heard about that. Yeah. Just talking about like, bring, let's bring it to the front. Let's quit hiding it. We need to talk about it. It's not just our past. It's part of all of our present. And we just need to be honest about that. And I just don't think there's any reconciliation without honest accounting of what happened. And we have been so resistant to that honest accounting. And I think that he is instrumental in in a in a more honest and accurate turning to that time period and thinking through it. I really do. I think his writing is a huge part of that. This book is been, you know, he's won awards. He's a MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, I'm pretty sure. And and that does not to say that I always agree with him because I don't. Right. Um, if I'm if I'm aligning myself on the spectrum of brutal, honest accounting and honest um, and hope and change, I'm probably leaning a little bit more towards the Barack Obama end of the spectrum. I, I like his interactions with Barack Obama, the way he talks about Barack Obama and their sort of disagreement about this. I think that's a beautiful thing to have. But I just you know, I think he's so incredibly insightful and intelligent and just can see he sees things and is able to convey that in such a wonderful way. Absolutely. This book, this book changed how I looked at the world. And I thought it goes, I thought it went really nicely with our very, very first book, which was now probably a year ago, uh, strangers in their own land where, when, when we talked, it talked about them lining up for the American dream. Um, and it talks about it. Like everyone is, is lining up for that same dream. And my thought after reading this book is, well, how do you get in that same line when your country has failed you? When it's not, it doesn't even see you as the same as the rest of the people in those lines. So it really just kind of broadened that where it's probably not a line. It's more of like a uh, mosh pit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, should we move on to the next book? Absolutely. All right. So our next book is Catherine Graham's A Personal History. I begged Megan to put this on the book club list after um, the post came out and she was talking about memoirs. I was like, oh, you got to do this one. It's so good. (laughs) I don't remember who we replaced. I'm sure it's fine as well. But I read this book in college. Um, It stayed with me all these years. I thought her journey um, was she's so vulnerable and honest about her journey. The, you know, all the being the only woman in the room inside, I always found it so fascinating. And she really was just on the front row of so much history, either the Kennedy White House, be it the Pentagon Papers, obviously Watergate, 
Well, I guess not obviously. Let's let's tell everybody a little bit about Catholic Graham, Megan. Uh, yeah, so I'm, disclaimer, I'm still reading this, but uh, I think that has been the most striking thing. Uh, she will just like insert people's names into the, the conversation. You're of like, oh yeah, I hung with them. They were, we were right. house. <laughs> and it's really, it's, she's really witnessing the history that we are all learning about in our generation. And it's incredible. Her father owned the Washington Post. Yes. Her husband, who by all accounts was very brilliant, um, very important in the JFK administration in particular, was taking over the post, but he had severe mental illness and committed suicide. So I think everything, everybody thought she was just going to fade into the night, but she did not. She took over the post. She ran it for several decades through the um, controversy that was the Pentagon Papers, deciding whether or not to publish the Pentagon Papers and um, sort of face the ire of the Nixon White House, much less legal ramification. Then, of course, um, Watergate, uh, Woodward and Bernstein worked for her. There you go. So um, she just really was a witness to all this and a really important participant. I mean, it was her ultimate decision to do all these things and to stand up to the Nixon White House and to publish these things because she was the publisher. So um, the post, which recently came out in which Meryl Streep plays Catherine Graham and Tom Hanks plays Ben Bradley, who was the editor in chief of The Washington Post at the time, um, particularly the Pentagon the Pentagon Papers and the crisis surrounding that at the paper. And it's just all so interesting. And she, you know, I, I, I always found her so fascinating because it's not like she came out. She, she, life forced these events on her and these experiences on her. I think that she would have just, she talks about how it was just assumed like, well, you know, my I, despite the fact that it is my father's company, my husband will take it over. Like, that's just what right. will happen. And... For, it took her so long to sort of find her own voice. She really was just sort of at this intersection of women's rights and changing women's roles and just happened to be in a very, a, you know, a position of power. So I really, I, that was actually part of the book that has stuck with me as I continue to read it is how matter of factly she talks about mm-hmm. the fact that she was not considered when her husband was yeah, still of course around. Not. Well, what would we do yeah. that? And I'm reading that. I'm like, oh, that's so infuriating. She's like, nope, that's just kind of. That's just how it was. I didn't even assume that I was going to be part of the Washington Post. And then she goes on to be such an influential player uh, for them. It was it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really hard for people to understand how different, particularly the early 19, you know, 20th century was for women's rights. Like you didn't have your children weren't yours. Your property wasn't yours. Your money wasn't yours. You were basically property yourself. You had no rights. Um, and her story really you know, illustrates that change. She wasn't I mean, but she was I mean, she was older, so she wasn't. She wasn't necessarily sort of like this young feminist movement in the 60s. She was already probably, I would I guess, by the time she took over the paper in her mid-30s, maybe mm-hmm. early 40s. Um, and so it just is a very different – she was really, you know, had to sink or swim in a big way. Absolutely. And I like her writing style is she's just very – She's telling the story as kind of like a detached where you still feel her emotion, but she's just telling you what happens. And then there are just every so often there are these little inserts where she adds a little narrative of she'll look back and she'll kind of say her thoughts on what happened based on where she is when she's writing the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's not all because it's not all that narrative. I think it's really it's really fun to read. It's not because some some nonfictions where you go this span of time uh, can be a a tad dry because it's just exactly what happened, but she's inserting her opinions about what happened based on where she is in her life when she writes it. And I think that's, that's really fun. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. 
Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. I also think what's so interesting about her, too, is just if you're a person who loves Washington, D.C., she actually has another book called My Washington that's just, like, all about her, like, Washington, D.C. stories. She also has a fun sort of intersection in history. Like, I believe Truman Capote's, like, first black and white ball was for her birthday. Like, it was, like, her birthday party. And the black and white ball was, like, a big deal for several, several years. It was, like, the it was like the Met Ball before the Met Ball existed. Okay. And um, it was, like, a big deal. And, like, that was all – she was, like, the co-host of it every year. And that was where, like – they wore black and white, obviously, but I think they usually wore masks. There's some really fun pictures of her and Truman Capote. But like, it's just it's a different time. Like it's it's she was sort of there when they all still lived there before the contract for America came and the congressmen started going home every weekend. I mean, it was a small town and it was a small town composed of the most powerful people in the country. But it was still a pretty small town with um, a lot of high society and a lot of women, um, sort of the wives led this own social circle and played their own roles in the sort of the halls of power. And she sort of intersected both. I think that's such an interesting part in the movie where she's like, like she's one of the most powerful people at the dinner table. They're like, okay, the men will go in here and the women will go in here. And she goes in there with the women. I'm like, shouldn't you be in there with the men? Like, um, (laughs) it's really interesting. I'm sure she has often felt caught between these, these two roles and these two worlds, but it was, it was such a, um, it was such a small social circle and because all the legislators and their families lived in Washington, D.C. and their kids went to school together, it was a very different scene. I mean, it's just it's a it's a time in Washington that doesn't exist anymore. And so her personal reflections on it is, are very interesting. Yeah. And the, the the smallness of the circle goes back like to college where it mm-hmm. wasn't just like they met all each other in Washington, D.C. It was just so funny to read stories of this is what happened at parties when we were all drinking. And then, you know, 20 pages later, the two of them are working together on some big Washington decision. And it just, uh, I just thought it was hilarious. Yeah. It's a very close <laughs> universe. I mean, I think that yes. it was, it was more a generational change for Kennedy more than it was when Kennedy came into power. I think it, it felt like the, that generation finally got a say, but it's not like it was this completely different world. They, they, they grew yeah. up so different from each other. They were all still elites. They all still went to very similar schools and all knew each other. Like, um, even Republicans and Democrats, like it was, a, it was a much, much smaller universe than it is now. Absolutely. So speaking of elites, our last book, Decision <laughs> Points, tell us about this one. Okay. 
I loved this book. Really? I did. Not, I, did. I, I really did I didn't not read it full commission. It. <laughs> uh, I thought it was illuminating would probably be a good word. You know, you see... Well, tell us what it's about first before we go any further. Yeah, sorry. Absolutely. So it's uh, George W. Bush is, is doing the narrative of what happened in his White House, but he's doing it from the perspective of these are all of the really important decisions that I made and my administration made that you read about in the news, but I'm going to tell you how they were made. Fascinating. And I thought that was so interesting to read about. I thought it was captivating would probably be a good way to put it where I chose this book because I've heard a lot of individuals that are of um, older generations than myself to say George W. Bush was our Donald Trump. Uh, He was our president who he didn't, He didn't divide people because of his policies. He divided people because of his values and who he was as a person. And so they were, they were drawing parallels with Donald Trump. And so when we chose autobiographies and memoirs, I "I really want to read something by George W. Bush as a group, because I think it is really relevant today. I mean, I definitely, it felt very sort of end of world scenario. Yes. Um, This was a huge deal. George W. Bush was elected to his first term. My, well, let me back up. George Bush was not actually elected (laughs) during his first time. Uh, He was sort of appointed by the Supreme Court. But whatevs, uh, when I was in college, it even felt that way when he won a second term and beat Kerry because we really thought Kerry was going to win when I was in law school. And yeah, it did. I mean, it, it was... It felt so divided then and it felt like we all saw the world so differently and it was just like the end of the world and these, you know, capital cronies were going to get in, corporate cronies were going to get in and corrupt the government. And that's sort of honestly what I look to now and I'm like, oh, that felt like the end of the world. We made it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I do think that they're very different, although I do. I mean, I I don't I really like George W. Bush now. I think that personally, he's probably a very nice man. He was not a very good president. Um, Yeah. And some of his most important decisions were the wrong one. And I don't think history has begun to um, look kindly on him or will continue to look kindly on him. Although if he keeps it up with this charming, like, that's some weird shit kind of stuff like he said at the inauguration, then he might have a fighting chance. But (laughs) so what is he what did you learn about his sort of decision making through this book? It was I learned a lot about how like the process of them making decisions where right now when we're talking about, and I think that's the biggest difference that I see between his presidency and Donald Trump, where whenever we talk about the current administration, the the structure around him is kind of crumbling away. He can't keep anybody. There's all this turnover. Uh, and it just seems like he's right or wrong. The illusion is that he's just sitting in a room, just, making these decisions willy-nilly. That's how it's being portrayed, in my opinion, to the public. And I feel like when George W. Bush was there, that's my, that is maybe how it was also portrayed. But reading this book, it was, here are the 20 people that it had to go through, and here's how he approached it. And it was very much, I'm going to put 100% of my time into this issue. I really want to learn about it. And I want to make an informed decision based on what the American people want. And even if that's not what happened in the end, (laughs) uh, I had a lot of respect for the process and the people that he chose to surround himself with and the amount of respect that I felt he held for the office. I don't feel like he ever took it lightly. So I just learned a a lot about the process and gained a lot of respect for him, even if I didn't agree with the end decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that, he this was not a this was not a impulsive, at least consciously ego driven guy. I don't think Absolutely. George W. Bush went in there to be like, I'm a winner. I'm going to keep winning. Everybody's going to love me. Like, I think he was concerned about his legacy as much as the next president. But I don't think that that was his guiding light. I, I think that the Iraq war happened because some of some seriously flawed groupthink, And it just spiraled out of control, as often happens in Washington, D.C. It's not like he's the first president to get us involved in a war that was um, unwinnable, arguably unethical, and based on faulty intelligence. So I think so much of what happened with the George Bush's presidency is, you know, it was just, it was who had access, right? I mean, the problem was so much of the access was driven by um, sort of the same conversation we were having about Catherine Graham. It was the elites. It was the wealthy. It was people who with a very distinct worldview. 
Right. Um, as opposed to a sort of a diverse, a diverse table of people making ar- lots of separate arguments and everybody going, OK, there's no easy answer here. But where do we want to lean? It was like, well, no, of course, this is the way it is. And let me bring in the five people who agree with me about how this is. Absolutely. No, that, yeah, that's that's a really good point. It just um, it was almost comforting huh. to know that even, you know, even if what happened and the decisions that were made weren't weren't what was best and right for the country that he really, really tried to do what he, what aligned with his personal values. And something else that I noticed in the book was his values did not waver. And that's just something that even if I don't agree with him, he got it from Barbara, yo, everybody says Barbara. Yep. Yeah. He got it from, that's all Barbara, I think for sure. May she rest in peace. Yes. So I just, I think it's a good, uh, I would love to see more books you know, not just about what happened, but how you made decisions like that. I think a uh, ton of hotsey coats to George W. Bush is about as big of a spectrum of experiences yeah. you could possibly <laughs> tackle in a book club. So we did a good job getting a nice, diverse set of perspectives. I'm really excited about the fiction books. I've already read them all. Awesome. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um But I think fiction is a really, really fun way to think about politics in the world. And I look forward to our next conversation next quarter, Megan. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. All right. Get to reading Pansy Politics Book Club. We'll talk to y'all probably sometime at the end of July. Is that right? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks for joining us for our All Things Books discussions. We'll be back on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Support for Pantsuit Politics comes from our listeners. We especially appreciate our executive producers, George Niedermeyer, Tracy Pedoff, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. Our theme music was written and performed by Dante Lima. To support Pantsuit Politics, please visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. Subscribe and leave a rating and review in the Apple Podcast Player and follow us on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic and Facebook and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics. <laughs>